Good morning. So today's podcast is in a series of podcasts on some kind of important uh, topics with obviously um, Foundation Doctor Changeover happening next Wednesday. So the first topic that I think it would be useful to be aware of as a junior doctor is warfarin. Okay, these are designed to be relatively short podcasts you can refer to if you are someone who is starting um, F1 next Wednesday or if you are in medical school and wish to know more about these topics this would be a good topic to know about. So to start off um, what is warfarin? So it's probably the best known oral anticoagulant okay and fundamentally there's there's two kind of major indications for it. For some patients, is the prevention of blood clots, um, which would be your patients with atrial fibrillation, would, that would be on warfarin, and the other one is used to treat it. So in the past, when patients have had pulmonary emboli, um, be started on warfarin. So we're basically looking at prevention and treatment of venous thromboembolism is one of the reasons. So prevention and or treatment of um, pulmonary embolism and DVT. Other things that we can use is sometimes um, warfarin is used in a post-operative setting for patients that have had valve replacements, um, more commonly longer term um, for metallic heart valves tissue. You can be on warfarin in the post-operative period, but normally gets converted um, after a few months to um, sometimes three months gets converted to a DOAC or a direct oral anticoagulant. Can also be used um, in other conditions. Okay. So how does it work? So warfarin. Um, is a competitive inhibitor of this important complex. So it's called the vitamin D um, epoxy reductase complex. Okay, um, Very important complex, which is important for activating vitamin D in your body. So with this mechanism, warfarin depletes the functional or useful amount of vitamin K that you've got in your body and therefore will reduce um, the synthesis of vitamin K-dependent clotting factors. Lots of important clotting um, features require vitamin um, K, and these are your 1972 clotting factors. So clotting factor 10, 9, 7 and 2 and regulates your protein C and protein S, which are important components of your anticoagulant system. So if you like, your protein C and your protein S are two proteins that counteract the effect of those clotting factors. So vitamin K is essential for all of these, and therefore by um, competitively inhibiting the vitamin K epoxide reductase complex, you reduce the amount of functional vitamin K and that's how it works. Theoretically, um, when 
would we give warfarin? Well, actually, you can give it any time of day. Tends to be given in the evening. Just, um, it is. There's not necessarily a reason for it. It's more just convention. Um, possibly because people are better at taking it later in the evening, etc. Um, Warfarin is a very difficult medication to manage because um, the response to warfarin, time in therapeutic range and other things are really dependent on lots of things. So um, there's factors such as the amount of vitamin K in your diet. So often people will be told certain foods, normally kind of green um, vegetables that they have got to limit their um, intake of. There are genetics, so some people metabolise warfarin a lot faster than others, some are slower. The actual quality of these vitamin K dependent factors, if you were to assay them, are different between different people. How fit and well you are onto current illness and infection can affect how well your body um, utilises warfarin. Other drug reactions, so this is a big one that we're going to talk about later, are your enzyme induced and your enzyme inhibitors. And what's really important that when you start a patient on warfarin or make any changes to their medications, you ensure that um, the changes to their medications will not impact on their warfarin. And therefore, if, for example, with antibiotics, you have really got two options. If you had someone with sepsis who um, you wanted to start on a particular antibiotic and you realise that that antibiotic interferes with warfarin, you've really got two options. You've got number one, you acknowledge that it, it will impact on warfarin metabolism, but then closely monitor the INR whilst they're in hospital. Or your second one is to choose an alternative antibiotic. The problem with the second method is you could be choosing antibiotics that um, the particular organism you're treating is not sensitive to, and therefore you will not treat the underlying process. And you could argue that the sepsis itself in interferes, the intercurrent illness interferes with your warfarin metabolism as well. So it would be a good idea to treat this properly. Um, Warfarin, what is important? So it's an oral medication. The onset is between one to three days. And if you were to start someone on warfarin, their INR would increase from normally 1.0 to start to show effect within two to three days. The duration of warfarin is between two to five days. This is really important um, thing to consider when you're prescribing warfarin for a patient is that the changes you make today might not impact the INR for a number of days. So there are patients who can have their dose of warfarin increased a lot because they've got a subtherapeutic INR but you can sometimes see this overshooting phenomenon when it becomes too high. Why is this important? Um, 
because it's critical for the way you dose warfarin. Another thing is warfarin's got really good protein binding. 99% is bound to protein. So um, patients with uh, low protein levels, be that because of um, low albumin because of intercurrent illness, uh, low albumin because of liver disease or nephrotic syndrome or other things, um, it's important to notice that it does have very good protein binding warfarin. So the cytochrome system, um, specifically the uh, P2C9 one, is the main one. So hepatic metabolism occurs through this cytochrome subclass. There are genetic alterations in this cytochrome P2C9. Um, again, the name is irrelevant. Just know that it's the cytochrome system. And there are genetic variations which actually impact hugely. So patients that are heterozygous can have about a 40% reduction in the clearance of warfarin. And if you're homozygous, if you have both alleles that are corresponding with reduced function, that can be about a 70% reduction in the clearance of warfarin. So clearly genetic variations in your cytochrome systems account for the variability you might see in patients. Some patients do very well on warfarin and it goes very well for them. Other patients have massive variability in um, their INR control. And a lot of this is probably down to genetic variations in the cytochrome system as well. The half-life of warfarin on average is about 40 hours, but the range at which we're talking about is like 20 to 80. So 40 is kind of the average half-life. Remember as well that half-life is when you've got 50% of the original um amount if you like the concentration in the blood so we normally say a medication is cleared after five half-lives meaning that five half-lives is five multiplied by 40 which is 200 hours which is not which is you know eight days when you properly got rid of it so bear that in mind with warfarin and Warfarin is primarily, mainly eliminated by glomerular filtration in the kidney. So 92% of warfarin is passed out in the urine. What are some of the things that we need to think about with warfarin? Well, we actually need to think about bleeding, don't we? There's a significant risk of hemorrhage, okay? And therefore, counselling patients when you start on warfarin is at least alerting them to, um, to this. It can be quite minor. So if they got a paper cut, take longer to clot but it can also be kind of more major things about life-threatening gastrointestinal hemorrhage and, and other things so that's important um, and it's kind of the main thing that you counsel patients on so when can't we give it so there's a few things so if someone had a life-threatening intracranial bleed um, you would obviously stop their warfarin okay so a hemorrhage so that is 
bleeding from the um, gastrointestinal tract, hematuria, um, cerebral bleeds, hemorrhages, dissecting aneurysms, lumbar punctures, all this kind of stuff, they're reasons not to have it at that particular moment in time. Obviously, if you've got an allergy or hypersensitivity to warfarin or any of its components, it's important. Um, and then we probably just need to say, well, it's normally shied away from in pregnancy, um, but in some patients, there's a risk benefit, which is really important with warfarin to assess the risk benefit. Um, for patients to have it, okay. So, elderly patients increase risk of bleeding, and a lot of this increased risk of bleeding and the needing for constant monitoring and the interactions with other medications has meant that in certain conditions, um, specifically in the management of atrial fibrillation, non-valvular atrial fibrillation, um the DOAX can be used instead of warfarin, obviously providing the renal function, everything else is okay. So they have to restrict consumption of um, foods that are high in vitamin K. So that is kind of green tea, kale, Brussels sprouts, spinach, all that kind of stuff, um, and limiting the amount of cranberry juice that they can have and cranberry sauce. So monitoring is normally done with the INR which is the prothrombin time. So it is a clotting time. And it's basically comparing the patient's clotting time to the kind of the um, normal, okay? So it just, it gives you a really lovely way. So three times, an uh, INR of three means you'll take three times as long as clot, five, five times as long as clot. So that's a brief look at warfarin. I'm going to talk about now um, some drug interactions that I think is really, really important. Um, and then we'll basically then talk about some practical things that probably is much, um, much important. Um, so that's kind of what we're going to talk about. So what I want to say is there are certain medications that can um, influence your metabolism of warfarin, okay? So I want to be very clear about this. So the first group of medications we're going to talk about, which are practically really important, and these are some of the ones to look out for, are medications that induce your P450 system. So if they induce the medications or, say, stimulate the... Um, enzyme complex that breaks down warfarin, warfarin increases your INR. So just think about it in your head. Warfarin increases your INR. If you have medications that induce the enzymes that break down warfarin, there's less warfarin available. If less warfarin is available, these medications decrease your INR. So there's a few medications I want you to be aware of. Okay. And the medications that I would say are really important to be aware of are, and it's a mnemonic that served me well for many years, is CRAPS. So C-R-A-P-S. So these medications that induce 
medication. So if you have an exam question or a patient whose INR has gone down, check that they're not on any of these medications because these are enzyme inducers. Enzyme inducers induce or stimulate this enzyme complex. This enzyme complex breaks down warfarin. So if you stimulate the enzyme complex, um, there's less warfarin available to affect the INR. INR goes down. So the C is carbamazepine. R is rifampicin. A could be alcohol. P for phenotoin or phenobarbitone. And that's your P. And then your S are your sulfonylureas. So a lot of patients are on sulfonylureas. St. John's wort and smoking. Okay. So that's what I would think about. Okay. One of the things I would really focus on. So, and we're going to talk about specifically, because it always comes up in exams, we're going to talk about anti-TB medications in a second and which one of those can affect your INR. So anyway, that's the kind of the big one now. Okay, so we're going to remember craps. Car, uh, carbazepine, rifampicin, alcohol, phenotoin, and then S stands for three things, sulfonylureas, St. John's wort, and smoking. We're then going to talk now about inhibitors, okay? So P450 inhibitors, we've got my favourite mnemonic, which is SICK, S-I-C-K, FACES, F-A-C-E-S, dot com. And I love this. I think it's such a, it's one of the best mnemonics I've come across. So P450 inhibitors, if we inhibit the enzymes that break down warfarin, more warfarin's available. What does warfarin do to INR? Sends it up, increases it. So sickfaces.com, S is sodium valproate, I is isonazid, another anti-TB drug, C is cimetidine, which is a histamine receptor antagonist, ketoconazole, an antifungal, is K, F fluconazole, another antifungal, A, alcohol, this, the alcohol that you're looking for is, this is, this tends to be binging, so to make very clear, chronic alcohol can work by inducing your P450 system, your P450 system can actually be inhibited by um, chronic, uh, by, sorry, binge drinking, so binge drinking tends to have an inhibited effect, chronic exposure tends to have an inducing effect okay and one of the um, ways i remember it is that chronic alcohol drinking tends to induce your p450 system what i remember is if someone's been drinking from a long period of time if you like they're an experienced drinker they've been drinking alcohol for a while the if these patients did feel sick, they would be able to induce vomiting because they've been drinking for ages. They know when they need to be sick. So inducing vomiting, you know, um, they'd be able to do that fingers down the back of the throat, etc. It's just the way I've remembered it. So if someone's a chronic drinker, drinking for a while, they'll have been drinking for ages. So when they are sick, they know how to make themselves sick and they can induce vomiting. Whereas patients that and maybe more alcohol naive and binge drink rather than have been drinking for a while, they might not know how to um, make themselves sick. That's just something I remember. 
So that was A for alcohol, um, C, chloramphenicol, E, erythromycin, um, antibiotic, S, sulfonamides, C, ciprofloxacin, O, emeprazole, and M, metronidazole. And obviously your cranberry juices, which are really important. So that's basically where we are. So we'll talk for that again, and then we'll talk about the anti-TB medications, um, and then some practical tips for warfarin, and then we're done. So again, your P450 inducers, if you induce the enzymes, you reduce the concentration of warfarin, you reduce your INR, it's craps. So carbamazepine, rifampicin, alcohol, chronic, because if you are a chronic long-term drinker, you know how to induce vomiting, enzyme inducer, phenytoin, um, and then sulfonylureas, St. John's, wort and smoking. Okay. P450 inhibitors, you inhibit the enzyme, there's more warfarin available, you increase your INR. Sickfaces.com, sodium valproate, isonazid, cimetidine, ketoconazole, fluconazole, alcohol, which is more your binge drinking, chloramphenicol, erythromycin, and sulfonamides, and then the convict, ciprofloxacin, quinolone antibiotic, emeprazole PPI, metronidazole antibiotic, and don't forget cranberry juice. So those are the medications that you are looking for. So when you look at someone's drug history, okay, you need to be aware of thinking, oh, um, if someone has got an INR that is abnormal for them, you need to really think about why has this person got a problem with their INR? Why has this person got a problem with their INR? Okay? Great. So I'm going to talk to you about some neat ways of remembering, because they always turn up in exams, anti-TB drugs, okay? And how they work, okay? Anti-TB drugs and how they work. So, let's be very clear, it's not the easiest thing to learn, but I'm going to try and give you some ways of uh, remembering the medications of that used to treat TB and the side effects. So, I will give you, and I will phrase this in kind of an exam way. So, trying to link in everything that we have talked about so far. Okay, so if someone was on anti-TB medications, okay, what might we need to say about that? What might we need to think about? Well, actually, interesting that different tuberculosis, anti-tuberculosis drugs work in different ways. We've already talked about, which we'll go over in a second, some medications induce the P450 system other ones inhibit it which is important to be aware of so my first question is going to be of the mnemonic that we just talked about how many of our medications came up on there so on our CRAPS so our enzyme inducers were there any anti-TB drugs on there and before I spoil the party just have a think about it now so how many were on there? So with our mnemonic, 
it was one, rifampicin. So rifampicin was on our enzyme inducers. Of our enzyme inhibitors, we had isonazid, okay? So we had isonazid on our enzyme inhibitors. So I want to pose a question, and let's try and make this as clinical as we can. So someone has come in with tuberculosis who has been treated and also on warfarin. Their INR is subtherapeutic, so it's below what it should be. So of rifampicin and isonazid, which one are they likely to be on? Which one? Well, let's think about this. They're going to have different side effects, aren't they? Okay. So the side effects could help you choose which one they might be on. So even if you forgot, okay, I know that rifampicin and isonazid are the two that I've narrowed it down to. Maybe there might be clues in the history as to have they got isonazid or rifampicin that is the responsible medication. So isonazid, okay, is really one that you want to think about in terms of side effects. So isonazid is one of the ones that you want to think about, okay, um, is this secondary to isonazid and how would you know? So isonazid, I think about INH, okay? So INH, that is what I refer to as isonazid. So you get iron accumulation with isonazid, so you can actually get sideroblastic anemia. You get N for neuritis, okay? Peripheral neuritis or peripheral neuropathy and H for hepatitis. So think about that when you think isonazid. Think I, you get iron accumulation, which leads to sideroblastic anemia. You get neuritis, which is peripheral, peripheral neuritis, and you get hepatitis. So if someone has got deranged liver function tests and they are on an anti-TB drug, think about isonazid. And remember what we said about isonazid. What does isonazid do to your INR? And how could we, um, what would lead us to thinking that this is the thing? So isonazid is a P450 inhibitor. So it would do what to your INR? It'll increase your INR. Let's talk about the other P450 drug and then we'll talk about the other TB drugs. Rifampicin gives you red-orange metabolites. That can be urine, that can be tears, etc. Bodily fluids will have a red-orange coloration, which is easy to remember because R for rifampicin. What would rifampicin do to your INR? Well, rifampicin is a P450 inducer. It induces or stimulates the enzyme complex that breaks down warfarin. Less warfarin available reduces your INR. Let's quickly talk about two other TB medications, ethambutol. Remember E for ethambutol, E for eyes. It decreases your visual, visual acuity and it gives you optic neuritis, okay? Decreases your visual acuity and gives you optic neuritis. So if someone's got visual problems with tuberculosis, which medication is responsible? Ethambutol. If someone with tuberculosis has got iron accumulation, so sideroblastic anemia, peripheral neuropathy or hepatitis, more likely to be isonazid. If they've got red-orange coloration to their urine, it's more likely to be rifampicin. Pyrazidamide is the other medication. So pyrazidamide is responsible for gout. So it gives you hyperuricemia. Okay? It gives you hyperuricemia. Okay. 
Last bit of the pow- um, of the podcast, we're going to talk about how to manage Warfarin, okay? So how you would get on this, um, it's all on the All Wales chart for those of you that are not based in Wales. It's very simple. Go on the BNF and go on Oral Anticoagulants, okay? And you want to go on Kumarins because that's the group that Warfarin belonged to. And it will talk you through all the target INRs. So remember, the target INR changes with the indication. So you need to know that to optimally dose the INR. So um, what we're going to talk about is the first thing. So if someone was on warfarin before an operation and it was stopped, and then they go back on warfarin after the operation, you may be asked to bridge with heparin. So what that is usually is that is normally different centers will do, some will use unfractionate, some will use low molecular heparin. So remember unfractionated is a, con, is a continuous intravenous infusion. Other places will use low molecular weight heparin depending on the patient. Low molecular weight heparin is normally the treatment dose that you would usually give for a pulmonary embolism. It's the same dose, so either one milligram per kilogram twice a day or 1.5 milligram per kilogram once a day. Um, and that would just be anoxaparin or whatever, tinzaparin, whatever you're using in your health board. If someone bleeds when they're on warfarin, if it's major bleeding, you would give vitamin K. Okay? You'd stop the warfarin and give vitamin K. If the INR is above 8 and it's minor bleeding, okay, you stop warfarin and you give vitamin K. If it's major bleeding, you will probably give them prothrombin complex, which is basically as a blood product, is your factors 10, 9, 7, 2, giving it to them. Um, that's basically what you do. So for major bleeding, stop warfarin, give vitamin K, give prothrombin complex. If the INR is greater than 8 and it's minor bleeding, you stop warfarin and you give vitamin K. You don't need to give the prothrombin complex. The INR is greater than 8 with no bleeding. You stop warfarin and you give vitamin K. Okay. Very important. Um, if the INR is between 5 and 8, so it's higher than it should be, you stop warfarin and you give vitamin K. Okay, we're going through the same thing. Um, if the INR is between 5 and 8 and there's no bleeding, you can withhold one or two doses of warfarin sodium. This is all in the BNF. Usually you stop warfarin five days before surgery and they'll be covered on another form of anticoagulation. Okay. So that's kind of your thing. So if you ever want to do know what to do with warfarin, look at the... Um, BNF under oral anticoagulants and it will tell you what to do. Um, so that's kind of the main things today. If someone know how warfarin works, know how to dose it, different health boards are different things. Certainly what we use in Wales is if you're going to start someone on warfarin, you give them 10 milligrams the first day and then you dose the next days on quite a nice chart. When you're working somewhere, make sure that you're aware of the guideline that that hospital used and follow that. And remember, 
to always make note of any medications that are have been started before you start any new medication on someone with warfarin make sure that it doesn't adversely affect the warfarin and if it is certainly crucial and needed you need to closely monitor the INR okay we've talked about those medications we've also actually as a bit of a side thing talked about because it's important for exam questions the common side effects of um, TB drugs that are used to treat TB and um, we've also talked about enzyme inducers enzyme inhibitors and some practical things about how to prescribe warfarin and certainly look in the BNF if you think we actually need to stop warfarin or if the INR is too high. The last point is if the INR is too low. So if the INR is too low, you increase the dose of warfarin by about 15 to 20%. So if they're on five milligrams and it's subtherapeutic, you could go up to six. And then you would cover them on um, anoxaparin. Okay, you'd give them um, treatment dose anoxaparin as well to make sure they're optimally anticoagulated. And as soon as they're back within their target range, you can stop the low molecular weight heparin and continue with the warfarin at the same dose. So that's quite an important thing. How to manage low INRs. Cover them with low molecular weight heparin and increase the dose of warfarin by about 15 to 20%. High INRs all depend on if it's my, minor or major bleeding and the level of the INR. In most cases, it's to stop the warfarin, give um, the vitamin K and when the INR comes down you can think about restarting warfarin when it's safe. So that has been today's podcast on warfarin.